Section 1 of the South American Republics, Volume 1, by Thomas Cleland Dawson. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Piotr Nater. The South American Republics, Part 1, by Thomas Cleland Dawson. Introductory, The Discoveries and the Conquest, Part 1. Spain's Discovery of America town or communal government has been characteristic of spain since before the roman conquest the visigoths who destroyed the advanced civilization they found in the peninsula never really amalgamated with the subject population and happily they did not succeed in destroying the municipalities the liberal civilized and tolerant saracens who drove out the goths left their christian subjects free to enjoy their own laws and customs the municipalities gave efficient local self-government, while a system of small proprietorships made the peninsula prosper, as in the best days of the Roman dominion. The population of Spain reached twenty million under the Moors, but finally dynastic civil wars enabled the remnant of Visigoths, who had taken refuge in the northern mountains, to begin the gradual expulsion of the Mahometans in the midst of these currents of war and conquest setting to and fro the old municipalities survived unchangeable and always supplying local self-government a tendency towards decentralization was ingrained in the spanish people from the earliest times it was increased by the method in which the christian conquest of mahometan spain was achieved the visigothic nobility starting from separate points in asturias and navarre advanced into saracen territory and established counties and earldoms which were virtually independent of their mother kingdoms the asturians expanded into leon and thence over galicia northern portugal old and new castile the power of the leonese monarch over galicia was nominal castile and portugal separated from leon almost as soon as they were wrested from the mahometans the basques were always independent and navarre though it became the mother of aragon had little connection with the latter region on the mediterranean shore charlemagne drove the moors from catalonia and made it a province of his empire but no sooner was he dead than it became independent towards the end of the thirteenth century the christian conquest was virtually completed and the peninsula had been divided into four kingdoms each of these was however in reality only a federation of semi-independent feudal divisions and municipalities united by personal allegiance to a single sovereign in the course of the continual quarrelling of the monarchs their kingdoms frequently divided coalesced and separated again the death of a king or a marriage of his daughter was often the signal for war and a readjustment of boundaries but these overturnings did not much affect the component and really vital political units more significant than the political kingdoms were the linguistic divisions spain then spoke and still speaks three languages each of which has many dialects from asturias and navarre the language now known as castilian has spread over the central part of the peninsula south to cadiz and murcia from galicia the gallego had spread directly south along the atlantic where one of its dialects grew into the portuguese on the east coast the catalonian imported from languedoc by the french conqueror is a mere derivative of the provencal its dialects are spoken all along the mediterranean coast of spain as far south as alicante 
as well as in the Balearic Islands. By 1300 AD, two great political divisions, Castile and Aragon, covered three-fourths of the peninsula, and their boundaries were well established. Each, however, was a mere loose aggregation of provinces, and every province had its own laws and customs, its jealously guarded privileges, its legislative assembly, and its free municipalities. Galicia had never become incorporated with Leon, the Basques ruled themselves, Catalonia was really independent of Aragon, Castile had, from the beginning, been virtually independent, although under the same monarch as Lyon, and indeed had taken the latter's place as the metropolitan province of the kingdom. The one great unifying force was religious sentiment, stimulated into fanaticism by centuries of wars against the infidels. Nevertheless, during the two centuries before the discovery of America, the Spaniards absorbed much culture from their Moorish subjects. In 1479, the whole peninsula, except Portugal and Granada, was politically united by the accession of Ferdinand to the throne of Aragon, and of Isabella to that of Castile and Leon. With local liberties intact, and peace prevailing through its whole extent, the peninsula enjoyed a prosperity unknown since the golden era of the Moors. The population rose to twelve millions. Andalusia, Galicia, Catalonia, and Valencia were among the most flourishing and thickly settled parts of Europe, while the military qualities of the aristocracy of Castile and Leon and Aragon gave the new power the best armies of the time. Colonies founded by a monarchy so organized could never be firmly knit to each other nor to their mother country. The nobility of the sword would try to establish feudal principalities, the new cities would endeavour to exercise the local functions of the old peninsular municipalities, and the spirit of local independence still animating Catalonians, Basques, Galicians and Andalusians would be repeated on a new continent. The only bond of union would be personal allegiance to the monarch. In the 14th century, Christian navigators reached the Canary Islands, 60 miles from the African coast and 600 southeast of Gibraltar. The assurance that land did really exist below the horizon of that western ocean, so mysterious and terrible to the early navigators, gave them confidence to push farther into the deep. In navigation, the Spaniards lagged behind their Portuguese neighbors. But among the Spanish kingdoms, Castile took the lead because her Andalusian ports of Cadiz, San Lucar, Palos, and Huelva faced on the open Atlantic. These towns swarmed with sailors who had followed in the track of the Portuguese and visited their new possessions. The Castilians and Andalusians were naturally jealous of the successful Portuguese. Madeira, the Azores, the Cape Verdes, and the gold mines of the Guinea coast had fallen to the latter, while the Spaniards had only the Canaries. They gave an eager ear to the rumours that were rife in the Portuguese islands of more marvellous discoveries still to be made of islands beyond the Azores. An adventurous Italian, Christopher Columbus, wandering among the Portuguese possessions, heard the stories. Happily for Spain, he believed them, and resolved to lead an expedition to the farther side of the Atlantic. He entered her service, and proved to be an enthusiast of rare penacity. It is immaterial whether the idea of a route to the East Indies by the West occurred to him at the same time he became convinced that there were islands in the far Atlantic waiting to be discovered. 
That which is certain is that he devoted his life to persuading some one in authority to entrust him with ships and men to make a voyage to the Far West. The pilots at Palos backed him, and he finally secured the desired permission and means from Isabella of Castile. Her interest in exploration and colonization had been shown fifteen years before in her energetic measures in conquering the Canaries and forcing the Portuguese to renounce their claims to those islands, and she well deserved the title of founder of the colonial empire of Spain. The story of Columbus's first voyage needs no retelling. He journeyed so far to the west that he returned convinced he had reached the longitude of eastern Asia, and the noise of his great discovery resounded through Europe and began the transformation of the world. Since the last great century, the 13th, Christendom had retrograded. The Tartars dominated Russia, and the Turks were pressing hard on Germany. Unless the Christian world could find an outlet, unless it could create another resources for itself and outside of itself, unless feudalism should find an employment for its military energies outside of the vicious circle of fruitless and purposeless dynastic wars, it seemed not improbable that Mahometan aggression would continue until all Europe lay under the deadening influence of the Turk. Only in the peninsula was apparent that spirit of expansion which is the best indication of internal vitality in a nation. The military nobility, whose determined fanaticism, magnificent courage, and spirit of individual initiative had driven the Moors out of Spain in the 13th century, welcomed this fresh opportunity to slay the infidel and carve out new fiefs for themselves. Conquest of the Andes Columbus showed strategic genius of the highest order in choosing Haiti as the site of the first settlement. That island afforded an admirable base for the conquest of the New World. It was large enough to furnish provisions, and was conveniently situated with reference to the coasts and islands of the Caribbean. Gold washings were soon discovered in the interior, and the unwarlike inhabitants were at once impressed into slavery to dig in the mines. The news of gold stimulated interest as nothing else could have done. The Castilian government took immediate steps to exclude all other nations. The Pope divided the globe between Spain and Portugal, and a treaty to this effect was negotiated between the two countries. Spaniards swarmed over to Haiti, and thence expeditions were sent out in every direction, headed by private adventurers bearing their sovereign's commission. The other Antilles were soon explored, and by the end of the century the Spaniards had reached the South American mainland and rapidly explored the coast from the Amazon up to the Isthmus. Gold was picked up in the streams flowing from the Colombian Andes into the Caribbean. A few years later the northwestern coast of South America was granted out to noble adventurers who undertook its conquest and exploitation with their own means. The Isthmian region became the new centre of Spanish power and commerce in America. In 1513, Balboa crossed the Isthmus to the Pacific Ocean, an event second in its far-reaching consequences only to Columbus's first voyage. During the following years, the Gulf of Mexico was explored, and in 1518, the greatest statesman and general whom Spain ever sent to the New World, Hernando Cortés, began the conquest of the empire of the Aztecs. 
The mining done in Haití and along the Carribean coast seemed pitiably insignificant compared with the treasures found in Mexico. There followed a new influx of gentlemen adventurers, who scoured the coast in every direction, seeking another defenceless empire and mines as good as those of Mexico. The expeditions down the Pacific coast of South America started from the Isthmus. Peru was soon found, and in 1532 Pizarro and his band of bloodthirsty desperadoes, with inconceivable audacity, struck a vital blow at the heart of the great empire of the Incas by capturing its emperor. Within half a dozen years, nearly the whole of the vast region over which the Inca power had extended was overrun, and the outlying provinces were ready to submit at demand. The rapidity with which a little band of Spaniards conquered the vast and warlike empire of the Incas is well-nigh incredible. The terror inspired by horses and firearms did much, but the capture of their emperor demoralized the imperial Inca tribes still more. Once in the possession of the sacred person of the monarch, the Spaniards were regarded by the Indians as the mouthpiece and the successor to his power. From Cuzco, the capital, a splendid system of roads and communications radiated to every part of the empire. The military and political dominance of the imperial tribes had weakened the power of resistance in the provinces. The elaborate structure which had been built up by the Incas rather facilitated than hindered the Spanish conquest, once the decisive blow had been given at the centre. The provinces submitted to the new rulers as fast as the Spanish columns could march over the magnificent mountain roads. South from Cusco, the Indian Empire extended 2,000 miles. It covered the whole Andean region as far as the 37th degree of south latitude and extended from the Pacific to the eastern slopes of the Andean foothills. In the present Argentine, it included the tribes living in the lesser chains which occupy the northwestern part of the Republic. Some of these Argentine tribes seem to have been only tributary to the Incas, others were completely dependent, and extensive colonies had been founded in the cotton regions. The general language was Inca, and that admirable system of irrigation and intensive culture which made Peru proper a garden had been introduced on the eastern slopes of the southern Andes. The southern part of the great Bolivian plateau seems to have submitted quietly to the Spanish conquerors, and the stream of adventurers passed on to the south. In 1542, Diego de Rojas led the first expedition, of which a record had survived, down through the Umawaka Valley into the actual territory of the Argentine. He himself perished in a fight with a wild tribe near the main chain of the Andes, but his followers continued their march. Near Tucuman, they passed out from the mountain defiles unto the Pampa, and leaving the desert to their right, penetrated through Santiago and Cordoba to the Paraná. No permanent settlement was then made, but the reports of thousands of peaceable and wealthy Indians inhabiting irrigated valleys, and the accounts of the magnificent pastures which stretched away to the east, soon tempted the Spaniards to take permanent possession. Seven years after the first exploration, a town was founded in latitude 27 degrees, midway between the Andes and the Paraná. About the same time, other adventurers came pouring over the Andes from northern Chile, and this current soon joined that from the north. The Spaniards established themselves as feudal lords, and the unhappy Indians were divided among them. 
In one district 47,000 Indians were divided among 56 grandees. In 1553 Santiago de Estero, for many years the capital of the province of Tucumán, was founded. In 1561, the governor of Chile sent from Santiago de Chile over the Andes an expedition which founded the city of Mendoza, in a most beautiful region where the vine flourishes in perfection, and where a wonderful system of irrigation, inherited from the Indians, still exists to attest the latter's engineering skill. Next year, San Juan was founded, and these two towns were the centres for the settlement of the province of Cuyo, which remained a part of Chile for two hundred years. The immigrants from northern Chile and Bolivia established Tucumán in the tropical garden spot of the Republic in 1565. From Santiago del Estero, in 1573, an expedition was sent 250 miles to the south, to a region of fertile valleys and plains at the foot of a beautiful mountain range. This was Cordoba, which at once became, and has since remained, the most populous of the interior provinces. By the end of the 16th century, the Spanish power was firmly established in settlements that have since become the Argentine provinces of Jujuy, Salta, Tucumán, Catamarca, Santiago, Rioja, and Cordoba. All these really formed a southern extension of Upper Peru. Their geographical, political, and commercial relations were with Charcas, Potosí, and Lima. The discovery in 1545 of the great silver mines at Potosí at once made the high Bolivian plateau, then known as the Audiencia of Charcas, the most valuable and important province of all the Spanish monarchs' South American empire. In 1571, the discovery of quicksilver mines in Peru vastly increased the output of precious metals. In 1575, the wonderful Oruro mines were opened, and before the end of the century, the copper pan amalgamation process was invented in Bolivia, revolutionizing the production of silver. The resulting prosperity of the mining regions of Bolivia stimulated the settlement of the northwestern provinces of the Argentine. The miners needed provisions which could not well be raised in the neighborhood of Potosí. There was a demand for cattle for beef and for horses and mules for transportation. A solid economic foundation was thus provided for the plain settlements, and the enslavement of the Indians and the breeding of cattle went on apace. By the end of the 16th century, northwestern Argentine, the province of Tucumán, as it was then called, was the seat of many thriving settlements whose Spanish inhabitants were mostly pastoral. The Indians in the neighborhood of each settlement had been reduced to slavery, and cultivated the fields that had been their fathers for the benefit of their white masters. The Spanish proprietors lived like feudal lords, while the Spanish authorities left these remote regions largely to their own devices. Conditions in Cuyo, the western province, just across the Andes from Santiago de Chile, were substantially the same. A political dependency of Chile, the few external relations it had, were with that captaincy general. The Spanish grantees ruled their Indian slaves in patriarchal fashion. Agriculture was the principal occupation. Pastoral industry was not so profitable as in Tucumán, and the region was more isolated. In both Tucumán and Cuyo, Spanish rule was superimposed upon a previously existing commercial and social structure. There was no attempt to expel or destroy the aborigines. 
on the contrary, they were the sole labourers, and their exertions the chief source of the wealth of their conquerors. There began a process of approximation and mutual assimilation between the Spaniards and their semi-civilized subjects. While the former continued to be a privileged and ruling caste, the latter absorbed much European knowledge from them. The Indian language long held its own alongside of the Spanish, and is still spoken in many parts of the region. On the Atlantic side, among degraded people who had not progressed beyond the wandering and tribal stages of existence, Spanish settlements proceeded on entirely different lines. There existed no well-organized body politic, into whose control the conquerors could step with hardly an interruption to industry. Campaigns could not be made with the confident expectation of finding abundant accumulation of food en route. Expeditions among the squalid tribes were slow and dangerous, and settlements stuck close to the rivers, instead of following fearlessly across the plateau to the spots where the finest lands and the most flourishing Indian communities lay ready for the spoiler. The beginnings of the coast provinces were painful and disastrous. The settlements were feeble. Centuries elapsed before the natural advantage of the region were utilized, and before its accessibility and fertility drew a great immigration. The assimilation of Indian blood did not take place on a large scale, and the immigrants and their descendants became perforce horsemen and fighters. End of section 1